Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today on our first day back at Two Services. As you saw from the video, we're starting a new series in the book of Mark. And as we do that, I want to share with you, when I was a kid, unless you're a clean freak, you can relate to this. Um, but I had two brothers, so, you know, there's three of us, boys, my parents. And, you know, unless you're, like, super clean all the time, whenever you have people come over, you clean your house, right? You, you got to look presentable. You got to prepare for people to come. And so my, my grandparents live about two hours from us. And so most of the time, we would go to my grandparents for holidays, birthdays, all that sort of thing. But every once in a while, they would come to our house. And when, I, when they would come to our house, it meant that we had to clean up a lot. And the reason why is because my grandmother is like Martha Stewart right? Before she went to jail. And uh, <laughs> I feel like I got to clarify in the first service, I said this too, my grandmother didn't go to jail. You know, Martha Stewart went to jail. Anyway, she's very clean. Like her house, if you ever sold a house, you probably can think of it this way. All the effort that you have to like make your house presentable. This is what her house looks like all the time. I mean, it's just always like that. And so whenever she would come over, it was like breaking child labor laws of how, how much work we had to do to get our house ready for her arrival. And I remember one time ask, distinctly asking my mom, do you think that our grandmother knows that we clean up this much? Or does she think our house always looks like this, right? Because when I was a kid, I was like, is it, are we like joking? Are we like, do people know that we do this? Or do they always think it's like this way, right? So we, we had to clean the house immaculately to prepare for who was coming. And today, as we begin the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, we're going to see Mark introducing us to this Messiah who is coming. And we're going to see that his preparation might not look like you would expect from the king of the universe to come. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you that you can read along. And if you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. I'm going to give you some background for the gospel of Mark before we get in. In the New Testament, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they are all the gospels referred to as the gospels. They are the written account of Jesus' life and his teachings and his death and his burial and resurrection. And so we are going to be looking at one of those accounts beginning today in the book of Mark. Now, What's significant to know is that Mark, who, when he wrote this, had in mind Gentile readers. And what this means is people who are not Jews, who didn't grow up with the Jewish customs and traditions. Uh, and so, in fact, you'll even see every once in a while, he'll have like little explanations for things that are going on. Because if you're not a Jew, you might be confused about sort of the traditions and the customs. Uh, it was written in the, either the late 50s to the mid, early to mid 60s AD uh, when, the Nero, when Nero was the emperor of Rome and there was heavy Christian persecution. Uh, the author, we don't know exactly for sure. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John don't actually say they were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, but there's a lot of tradition that points to them being the authors. And so uh, Mark was most likely written by a guy by the name of John Mark. Now, John Mark was not an apostle himself. He was not a disciple of Jesus himself, uh, but he was somebody who had heavy interaction with the apostles and with the disciples. In fact, uh, his mother Mary, you can read about this in Acts 12, uh, was the person who hosted the house church in Jerusalem when the church was beginning, and so they had significant interaction with the early believers. Uh, John Mark also, if you're familiar with this name, accompanied Barnabas and Paul. You can read about their missionary journeys in the book of Acts uh, on their first missionary journey through the Roman Empire. And, and something happened during this missionary journey that caused John Mark to kind of leave and kind of defect away from Barnabas and Paul, so they had to do it without him. And so fast forward a little bit, Barnabas and Paul are going to get ready to go on a second missionary journey, and John Mark uh, wants to join them again, and there's so much division between uh, Paul and Barnabas that they split up, because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, Paul did not want to take John Mark, because he had already deserted him the first time, and so they split up, and they had massive disagreement over this. Now, we do know, if you read some of Paul's later letters that are in the New 
New Testament, uh, that he mentions John Mark, and so they had some sort of reconciliation, which is really neat. But I just think as a side note, it's really cool that one of the authors of the gospel that God has entrusted us to learn about Jesus was someone who, when things got hard, he gave up, and yet he was redeemed. And so John Mark uh, also spends a lot of time with Peter, who was the leader of the disciples. Uh, pretty much most, if not all, of his material comes from Peter. In fact, as we'll see throughout the book of Mark, uh, Peter is mentioned more than any of the other disciples, and there's not a single story told in which Peter is not present. And so that's what we have going into the book of Mark. Let's begin Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. Now, just to define our terms so we're all on the same page here, gospel literally means good news. Uh, it's from the Greek word uh, euangelion, which most often refers to when people were, would report victories from the battlefield. So the gospel in the first century was a very common word, and most people associated it with, with your territory or your tribe or your country. When you would go to war and you would win, you would have people come back with the gospel, with good news of your victory. And so it's, it's, it's significant for us to know the context of this word that they, the early followers of Jesus use to describe Jesus and his mission. That this Jesus, this God-man has come to provide victory. That is the associations with this word. And so the gospel in the New Testament is not just the message of Jesus, but it is also Jesus himself. And so this is the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying, or, or Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it says this, verse two, it says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now here, Mark mentions the prophet Isaiah, but he actually is referring to three uh, Old Testament verses or passages that he kind of lumps together. So in verse two, when he talks about sending my messenger ahead of you to prepare your way, it comes from Exodus 23 and Malachi 3. And they both mention that God is going to send a messenger to announce the coming of the Messiah, that the anointed one has come. And then in verse 3, when it says, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, this is literally word from word taken out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so what, who Mark is referring to, as we'll see in just a second, is John the Baptist. Now again, for us, maybe with, with a service level reading, not fully familiar with what the people in the first century would have saw there, this is a significant claim. So what the early believers, what the early uh, Jewish people who were anticipating the Messiah, there was this belief that the prophet Elijah, who was a great prophet in the Old Testament, would somehow return in some way or some fashion to announce that the Messiah has come. And so what Mark is going to do is say that John the Baptist, who is six months older than Jesus and actually a cousin of Jesus, he is the one, he is the Elijah-like figure that is going to announce and prepare the way for the good news of the Messiah, what, that what, as it says in verse three, the Lord has come. And so as we begin here, just to make sure we're all on the same page, here's what Mark is telling us, even in the first couple of verses, and that is that Jesus is God. What Mark is telling us is that Jesus is God. Now, I know this gets a little confusing, particularly if you're new to the faith or you have questions about faith, because in Christianity, you have the Trinity. You have God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So these are three separate entities, separate beings, but yet at the same time are one being. It's a way that our, it's a way that our kind of human finite minds can't fully comprehend that it's three and at the same time one. And so Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, literally God-man come to the world. And so Mark is telling us this is who has come. So it's not a good moral philosopher. It's not a guy with cool revolutionary or radical ideas that this is literally God himself. And if we miss this, then we miss the entire point of the book of the gospel of Mark. Now, maybe to make this more real, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. I have not met very many big or famous people in my life. Um, But if you ever have, maybe you met an athlete or an actress or a musician or somebody that a lot of people know, but, but maybe you didn't know about them. And so you tell people, yeah, like I saw this person and they're like freaking out because you met somebody that was really significant to them. But, but since maybe you're not into these things, you're like, whatever about it. Uh, and so you kind of miss the significance of it. So this happened to me a couple of years ago. My younger brother works for a company in Los Angeles and they, they're an apparel company. They do a lot of online content and they own a couple of professional sports teams. And, or sorry, it's professional video game esports teams, and uh, which is a big thing in that world. And so a couple years ago, my older brother and I flew out to LA to spend a week with him, and we met uh, some of the some of the guys, some of the players. And so one of their biggest uh, league, one of their biggest, uh, the most internationally known teams that they have is a League of Legends team. Who's familiar with League of Legends? So a couple of people, okay. Um, I had no idea what League of Legends was, but it's a really, especially on an international scale, it's a really big thing. And so they own one of the North American teams. And so I remember going and like going into the house where they have, where they live. So they actually had a house where the players live. They had their own private chef, the coaches. Uh, I remember my brother telling me it cost them 45 grand a month just for the house. Uh, these, these athletes, I shouldn't say this because some people maybe have opinions about this, these players, some of them make over a million dollars a year. In fact, this is such a big deal that when they get to the playoffs of the League of Legends, they will go to, they'll fly to places like where the Miami Heat basketball team plays or the, or the uh, Oakland, or the Golden State Warriors where they play. When Logan, my brother, has gone with them, these stadiums will be sold out to watch these people play this game. And so I went to this house, I met some of these people, and I'm like, whatever. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know who you are. I mean, that's cool. Like, it, it was fascinating, but it was nothing to me. And so then I, you know, from time to time, I tell people that I, I've met these people and I'd say some of their names and they're like, what? And I'm like, I don't, yeah, great, right? Because for, to me, for me, because I was not in that scene, it was not significant. And so again, I shared that, that Mark is saying that Jesus is the significant one that you and I need to know about. And if we miss who he is, we're going to miss the entire point of the gospel of Mark. It's not to tell us about this cool guy that came who had really revolutionary ideas and lived a really really moral life. That's to completely miss the point that Jesus is God himself. And that is who Mark is presenting to us even in the first couple of verses. And so he'll continue in verse four by saying this. He said, John, now this is John the Baptist, not the disciple of Jesus. This is John the Baptist who we were just talking about, came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
Now, in this time period, there were various ways in the various you know, Jew- Jewish you know, sects and religious groups and leaders who would baptize people for different ways, for different reasons and for different motivations. And so we're not exactly sure you know, the type of baptism that John is doing, but there are some things that make the, that his baptism is distinct from other baptisms. Uh, one of them is that typically, whatever the type of baptism, whatever it would look like, uh, baptism most often for most Jewish people was reserved for Gentiles. That is non-Jews. So people who wanted to become God-fearers, people who wanted to believe in Yahweh, who were not ethnically Jewish, who didn't grow up with the traditions and the customs, one of the things that they could do to demonstrate that they want to follow Yahweh, the Lord, is to get baptized. Now, John's baptism is unique because it was not just the Gentiles who were invited to be baptized by John. It was also the Jews, which is interesting because the Jews were God's chosen people. Why would they need to be baptized? You see, for John, what his baptism was about the forgiveness of sins. Not that his baptism actually forgave your sins, but it's anybody, Jew or Gentile, who would be honest and admit that we all fall short and need God's grace and forgiveness are welcome to be baptized. And this is one of the ways that John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. He prepared people by encouraging them to repent and accept God himself who was to come. And so he starts baptizing people, Jews and Gentiles, to prepare for this Messiah. Then it says this in verse 6. It says, John wore a camel hair garment and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, it's interesting for Mark to have this information here, because if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you'll, you might know that it is the shortest of all the Gospel accounts, and he doesn't give us a lot of information about a lot of things. It's kind of just like, bam, 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 this thing happened, and this thing happened, and this thing happened. And so, whenever he gives you extra information, you should sit and think, why is this here? Now, for us, first, or 21st century people reading this book, it doesn't mean much to us. Interesting what he wore and what he ate. For the first century, he's making, he's making radical claims and connections with John the Baptist, with the prophet Elijah, and here is why. Uh, His clothing would have been unusual, but it's not just that his clothing would have been unusual, but that John the Baptist wore the same thing that the prophet Elijah wore. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 1. It says that Elijah wore a garment of hair and a leather belt. So again, Mark is presenting John the Baptist as this Elijah-like figure who is preparing the way for the Lord. He wore the same exact thing that Elijah wore, which was unique and different. Now, his diet wasn't necessarily different, especially in the region in which he was doing ministry. A lot of people in that area might have eaten some of the same things that he ate. But what made it interesting was that here you have a prophet or a priest or a religious leader who was eating things that the other Pharisees and the religious leaders would not have eaten. So even when certain religious leaders and Pharisees maybe would have ventured out to where John was, they would not have eaten the things that John was eating. And so, again, what Mark is doing here is he's trying to demonstrate to us that John is different. That John, at least in Mark's mind, is this Elijah-like prophet and figure who is coming to say the Messiah has come. And then he says this in verse 7. It says, he, and again, this is John the Baptist, he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So what John is saying is here is that he is not worthy to untie his sandals, which is the connotation of you would untie someone's sandals and you would wash their feet. So again, in the first century, this is something that slaves did or servants did or low-class people did to high-class people. It's like, it's not, I mean, it was, it was a, not something that you would want to do, right? And so for what John is saying here is that even me, who people were following, he, as we'll see if you read the gospel accounts, he actually amasses quite a large following. And yet he is saying that not even I am worthy of not even uh, washing Jesus's feet. I am so unworthy of the person who is coming after me. Now, not only is that interesting here, but his baptism and how he describes his baptism versus Jesus's baptism is also significant. He talks about how he baptizes with water uh, to tell people that they need to be, uh, you know, to repentance of their sins. But then he says, Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because in the Old Testament, God was the only person, understandably, who could give his spirit. And so there was nothing you could do to earn God's spirit. You couldn't manipulate him into giving you his spirit. You couldn't like, try to be a really good person. It's just in various times throughout the Old Testament, you see God who decides to give this person or this group of people his spirit to accomplish certain tasks. God is the only one who gets to give his spirit. No one else gets to give it. And so what is John saying here? John is declaring, and Mark is writing down, that this Jesus person has the ability to give us God's spirit, which means that Jesus, again, is God himself who has come. Only God can give his spirit, and Jesus is giving God's spirit. And so, again, what we see, even in the first eight verses already, we see that John is present, or Mark is presenting Jesus as divine. Now, here's why also this is important for us to understand, because you might hear from time to time, people say, well, after 100 years or 200 years after Jesus, you know, his death, burial, resurrection, or, you know, after he's gone from this earth, that is when the followers, the early Christians started to talk about Jesus being divine, because they were trying to, like, get people to join in on their movement. And yet what we see, even non-Christian biblical scholars will admit that the gospel of Mark was likely written by the mid-60s at the latest, all throughout the scriptures already in the first eight verses, we see Mark saying, Jesus is God. And not only that, we're seeing this point, as we see here with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus giving God's spirit rather, that Jesus gives us what we cannot earn. So this Messiah, this God-man is coming to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So again, it would be a mistake for us to read this and to think, oh, I you know, it's interesting to me to learn about this really guy, this guy who led a movement and who was really radical and was really moral. Uh, that is not who Mark is showing us here. Mark is showing us that this man who's giving us the gospel, the victory of God himself has come. And it's not just this cool story, but it's something that we desperately need. That you and I cannot earn God's spirit on our own. We cannot earn God's favor on our own. We cannot earn God's grace, God's forgiveness. It is all a gift that God gladly gives us through the coming to the person and work of Jesus. It's not just a cool story. It is something we desperately need. Maybe an analogy for you. I know the new Space Jam has just come out with LeBron James. I haven't seen all of it. I've only seen parts of it. But what I, the parts I have seen, it was nothing like the original, which is typically what happens. And if you are familiar with the original, uh, it came out when I was like six or seven years old. You basically have the Looney Tunes, right? And then you have these monsters, these like monster people, these big monster guys who are coming in and we're going to take things over. And so the Looney Tunes need help in this basketball game to beat the monsters. And so they come up with this plan when Michael Jordan's golfing that they like suck him down this golf hole, right? And they're all excited and they're freaking out that Michael Jordan is here. In fact, I remember, <laughs> I was so cool. I remember like going to Jelly Beans. Who remembers Jelly Beans? Anybody, you know, the skate rink, right? Um, I remember when like that song would come on, like
like, welcome to the jam. We would go around and like slam the, it was so dumb. We would just be like, I don't even know what we were doing in our little rollerblades. But so anyway, why am I telling you this story? So Michael Jordan is in the Looney Tune land, right? And they're all freaking out and they're excited, which is great. But if they stayed there, if they stay just excited that Michael Jordan came and didn't realize that he actually came to do for them what they could not do on their own, which is to win, that would be a problem. So it's not enough for us, again, to read Mark and be like, oh, this Jesus guy is cool. What we need to be seeing here is that he's doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, that he is providing victory for those in Christ that you cannot have on your own doing. Jesus gives us what we cannot earn, which is his love, his grace, and his mercy. And so we'll continue reading in verse 9, and then it says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, if you're somewhat interested, familiar with Jesus' upbringing, uh, you'll know that Jesus didn't actually, wasn't actually born in, Be- or in Nazareth. He was actually born in Bethlehem. And then he spent a couple of his early toddler years in Egypt. And then he apparently spent most of his childhood in Nazareth. Now, a little Bible trivia, trivia for you. Nazareth is so insignificant that it is never actually even mentioned even once in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned even once. And this is the place where God sends his son to grow up. Not what you would expect. In fact, I, you know, we did this trivia thing earlier right in the beginning. I'm from North Carolina. If you're from Michigan or wherever you're from, uh, you might have places in your state where you don't know where they are, but you, when people tell you they're from there, it's like, oh, I've heard of that town, but I don't know where it is. Right? Nazareth is even more than that. Not only is it a town you don't know where it is, you never even heard of it. You never even heard of it. It kind of it reminds me, you know, when people move to the area, when people, new people move to the area, as you know, if you call New City Church home, I'm a big college basketball fan, right? Big college basketball fan. And so when people come in, I say, hey, you know, if you're, if you're not a college basketball fan or if you are, you should probably pick a local team to choose from. And you've got Duke and Carolina, right? They're the teams that are good. You know, obviously Duke's the better one, but they both win. And so they both, you know, it's exciting. And so I'll tell them about Duke and Carolina. And then before I forget, I'll also mention, well, you know, there is a third school, NC State, and they're great and all, but they're like, they're like your little brother who never wins anything. Like they try really hard and they break your heart. And so if you want to pick a winner, at least in college basketball, you pick Duke and Carolina. And so Jesus is like coming from NC State. I don't know if that's blasphemous or not at all, but it's like Jesus is picking the losing team. And this is where he comes from. This is not what you would expect. And so Jesus comes from Nazareth, a place that nobody has ever heard of. Now, this is where he grows up, and then he does his baptism. Now, what's significant here is that when Jesus is baptized, to be, this really inaugurates his ministry. And so Jesus is around 30 years old when he begins his earthly ministry on earth, which will last for about three years uh, until his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Jesus, when it, when it talks about his baptism here, it says that, this, what does it say? The spirit descended on him like a dove. This can also be translated, and even if it's not translated this way, it's really meant to be understood this way, that the spirit uh, descended into him. So not just onto him or not just around him like this spiritual protective shield, but literally went into him. So you have God the Father, God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit to work and to live out his ministry. And so the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Now this is not some mysterious, you know, what does a dove mean? Let's try to figure out. What Mark is saying here is that this was simply an empirical reality. 
The people saw that there was something significant that came onto and into Jesus. And as followers of Christ, that same spirit gives, gives, is granted to us if you are in Jesus. And so, in fact, what's happening here is so significant that he is being called God's son that one uh, a biblical scholar puts it this way. It'll be on the screen. He says it this way, to no prophet had words been spoken such as the words to Jesus at the baptism. And then he's going to mention some well-known figures in the Old Testament. He says, Abraham was a friend of God. He says, Moses was a servant of God. Aaron, a chosen one of God. Aaron was the first of the, pre- of the, of the priests of the Levites. It says, David, who's one of the kings of Israel, was a man after God's own heart. And Paul was called to be an apostle of God, even though he killed and was, oversaw the killing of Christians before he became one. Then it says this, only Israel, in Exodus chapter 4, and the king as Israel's leader, one time in Psalm chapter 2, had been called God's son before. But where Israel failed, Jesus takes its place. In other words, what's happening here and what Jesus is coming and what he's doing is that Jesus does what Israel failed to do. Jesus does what Israel failed to do. And here's why this is important for us to know. That Christianity is not, is, it would be incorrect to view Christianity as some sort of new religion that sprung up, right? You have Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and all these different things. And you kind of have this idea that they just kind of started somewhere. That is not what's happening here. Christianity is not some new thing that arose out of nothing that Jesus decided to start all on his own. But rather, Jesus is fulfilling the laws and the prophets and the yearning of the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. The longings and the visions of who this Messiah would be, that Jesus is this perfect son. And he's going to do what Israel failed to do, right? They were called to be a light of the world, a city on a hill. And yet time and time again, they fell short. Just like you and I do. We cannot stand up to the perfect and holy, righteous nature of God. And so Jesus comes and does what? What Israel failed to do and what you and I failed to do. This is not some new thing that's starting out of nothing. But even in the beginning, when sin first entered the world, what did God say in Genesis? That he will provide rescue and that this is who this Messiah was. That this, he's bringing a renewal, and just like John's baptism, right, was not just for the Jews, Jesus' salvation is also not just for the Jews, but it is for the entire world. No matter who you are, or what you have done, or what has been done to you, everybody is invited to participate in the kingdom of God and in Christ's victory. Jesus does what we fail to do. Then he continues, we'll read this uh, in verse 12, the last two verses that we'll read in Mark. It says this in verse 12 and 13. It says, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. And so again, Mark gives us a very shortened account of what's happening here. We're not told a lot about John the Baptist in the book of Mark. We're not told a lot about Jesus' temptation in the book of Mark, other than it lasted 40 days and it was the beginning of his earthly ministry, that he, was, uh, that he fasted, that he prayed, uh, that he was tempted by Satan. And of course, unlike Israel and unlike you and me, he passed the test. He did not fall prey. He did not sin. He resisted Satan and his temptation. And so again, what Mark is showing us here is that Jesus is standing in the place of Israel and for us. Just like Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and he does what Israel doesn't do and what you and I don't do. Jesus prevails. And not only that, he prevails with the gospel victory of good news that anyone who is a part of his kingdom will be victorious as well. 
So even as we begin the gospel of Mark, the first 13 verses, we'll end this morning to, present, to, be a, to remind us to be in the right place as we go throughout this book and remember this important truth, that the gospel of Mark is showing us that God has come. God has come. Not some good philosophical leader, uh, not some person who's being radical and challenging religious people for the sake of being radical and challenging religious people, not saying, hey, just not just simply be a moral example of what does it mean to be a loving and kind person. Jesus has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Again, the gospel is is good news about a victory, that Jesus overcame sin, darkness, evil, death, suffering. For what? For us. Not because he had to, not because he needed to, because God is in perfect relationship with himself within the Trinity. He does not need us, but in his love and his grace, he has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And if we read the gospel of Mark and we just read about this really cool guy, we completely miss the entire point of what Mark is writing about. There is salvation and there is grace available to you. And it is not because of you, it's because of him, that God has come. So Merry Christmas in August. God has come. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, if you've got questions and doubts and you're not sure about this Jesus thing, the good news of the gospel is this. There is victory in Jesus and you are welcome. In the midst of your doubts and falling short, you are welcome. You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to act a certain way. You simply receive the grace and redemption of Christ and his perfect life and his defeating of sin and death on the cross that one day when he returns again, you and I can participate in his kingdom and in his victory because he has welcomed us. And if you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, to be reminded that as you fall short and as you blow it, that you don't have to walk with your tail between your legs. And you don't have to give God a time, a period of cooling off before you can go back to him, that in the midst of our shame and our sin, he has come to grant us life, to invite us into his kingdom, as we're going to see as we continue through the book of Mark. But the good news is that God has come and everybody is welcome at his table. Let's pray.